Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. It's Friday, November 21st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. The holidays are almost here, and you probably don't have time to go to the post office. I mean, I certainly don't. It will be packed, everyone will be mailing holiday gifts, and so on. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. Use promo code MINDS for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. I'm delighted to welcome back to Inquiring Minds our most popular guest host, Cynthia Graber. She's a science writer and a broadcaster, and her interview with Michael Pollan at the start of the year is still one of our biggest hits. Cynthia has since launched her own excellent podcast called Gastropod, all about the science of food. But today she's here to help me kick off a three-part series about our genetic code. Since the media reported that our DNA has been sequenced a number of years ago, most of us expected pretty major changes to our lives, especially in terms of our healthcare. And for the most part, the changes just haven't come. So to explore why, we're delving more deeply into the latest research over the course of the next three weeks. And to start us off, Cynthia interviewed George Church. He's a geneticist at Harvard, and he's a pioneer in genetic sequencing and engineering. He was the first to publish a direct method of DNA sequencing. So when it comes to getting an overview of what we know and what's left to discover, he really is the man to talk to. So Cynthia Graber, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Great to be back. So where did you meet up with George? So last month, I went to this conference. It's actually my favorite conference of the year, the National Association of Science Writers, their annual meeting. And connected to that meeting is something called the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing. And George Church was one of the plenary speakers at that part of the weekend. So he's a superstar scientist here in Boston, and I actually have met him here before. I went to a party at a local Mexican restaurant where he was talking about his recent book called Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. Um, Dr. Church is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, and he's the director of personalgenomes.org. 
But at the conference, he, he wasn't really – he wasn't just talking about health. He talked about a lot of different aspects of the ways in which synthetic biology and genetic engineering can have an impact on our lives and on the world. He started off by talking about a new tool called CRISPR. It's something that's actually borrowed from bacteria. It's based on a trick from bacteria, and it allows much faster editing and writing of genetic code. And it's allowed the world of synthetic biology to zoom ahead much more quickly than had been anticipated. So do you mean that this is a new way in which people can sequence the code or actually it's also a way, I mean, you mentioned editing. So is this, is this? A- yeah, no, it's not about sequencing. This is about writing. It's about using this tool to insert pieces of code. So it's about finding ways to edit it, to change it, to write it. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's one of the parts of his work that I find really exciting. I mean, it's, you know, he's he's the man for synthetic biology, creating things from nothing. And of course, that's controversial to a lot of people, but also really exciting for those of us who love science. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating field. And, and I think it, it is controversial, but it's also just so interesting. There's so much we still don't know about DNA, but so much that scientists are already able to move ahead with. Amazing. So that's our interview for this week. But before we get there, let's talk about some science making headlines. So, Cynthia, what's on your mind this week? So there's a study that came out in Science Translational Medicine recently, and I found it fascinating. It's about vaginal microbicides and their use as a possible tool to prevent the spread of HIV and AIDS. So I used to work for a national radio show that covered poverty and justice issues, and that show actually folded in 2011, unfortunately. But years ago, we used to report that these microbicides had a great deal of promise. They could help women whose partners wouldn't use condoms or women who didn't know if their partners were faithful. It gave women power in in terms of trying to prevent the spread of HIV. It seemed great. So wait, wait, wait. So this this is different from a spermicide. This This is something that you use to protect yourself like a spermicide in the sense that, you know, it's the, the insertion method is the same, but then you're, what you're trying to do is protect yourself from any anything that you could catch from your partner. Well, you're trying to prevent, you're trying to protect yourself from AIDS. I mean, that these vaginal microbicides are specifically targeted to the virus that causes HIV. And the idea is that they could be used in Africa to prevent the spread of AIDS. So they worked fantastically in the lab. And so there was a great deal of excitement and hope around them and that these gels killed the virus that causes HIV. And that's great. But the problem has been that none of them have worked in clinical trials, and it's been a a huge disappointment and a really big deal. So the study that was recently done explains why they didn't work. It turns out that in the lab research that was done previously, the scientists never included semen. And so it turns out that semen contains proteins that are super sticky, and they help the HIV virus stick to human cells. It basically, like, these proteins in semen help the virus evade the microbicide. So in those previous lab studies, as I mentioned, they just studied cells protected by a microbicide in the presence of HIV. So this current team of researchers did something else. They took cells and microbicides and the HIV virus and semen, and the microbicides all then failed to work in the lab. But there is some good news in this, which is exciting. There was one drug that did seem to work in the presence of semen. It's called Maraviroc. So the other microbicides target HIV, but Maraviroc instead hooks into the receptors on human cells to prevent HIV from getting in. And that still worked. So Maraviroc right now is an HIV drug, but it was being considered as a vaginal microbicide. And uh, I don't know, hopefully to me, this study will help speed that along. But what I really, what I really thought was fascinating about this 
is it just shows how closely you need to mimic the real world as much as possible because so much can go wrong in medical studies. In retrospect, it sort of seemed to me like, of course, but of course, I wasn't there when they were designing the original lab studies and maybe including semen had seemed pointless. Yeah, I mean, it does seem, you know, hindsight, of course, is 20 cents. It seems totally obvious now that you would, would want to mimic those conditions. But, you know, I, I can also see how in a lab, sometimes it's maybe difficult to find samples of semen. And there are so many other variables that you would introduce uh, that would affect the way that you interpret your results. So it's good to know that they finally solved that problem. And it does seem really exciting. I mean, do you think we're going to get to a point where, you know, we can, we, age just won't get, or HIV won't get transmitted because everyone's using these kinds of microbicides? Or are there, are there other side effects of the microbicides that are undesirable? Well, I don't know about side effects. That, as far as I know, they haven't gotten to that point in studying this drug as a microbicide that way. But the drug is already used in humans as an AIDS drug. So my guess is that whatever the side effects are, they've been found to be minimal enough that it's you know still a useful drug. So I would think that because those safety tests have been done, the drug would be able to move more quickly to, uh, to human trials. So I don't know personally, but it seems really promising. Amazing. So there's another study that's made that actually hasn't made any headlines this week that has caught my attention, however, and I think it's pretty important. And that's a study of um, motor vehicle accidents in teenagers. So, you know, we all know that teenagers are notorious for getting into motor vehicle accidents. And, you know, almost all of us have someone that we knew in high school that was either killed or injured in a car crash. And it's, it's very sad, but it's quite common. Uh, and there's a study now that comes out that suggests that actually when classes begin in the morning might have an effect on the crash rate for teen drivers. So this was a study that was conducted in Virginia. It's published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. And over the course of a year, they found that the number of motor vehicle accidents uh, that involved teen drivers was 29% higher in a county where the classes begin at 7.20 a.m. than in an adjacent county where classes started at 8.45 a.m. So the earlier the classes, the more likely the teens were in to get into accidents. And so, of course, the, the hypothesis here is that the problem is, is that these teens are driving and they're sleepy and uh, that, in fact, uh, sleepiness is a really strong um, cause of motor vehicle accidents. And, and in fact, you know, it, it turns out that drowsy driving causes something like 328,000 accidents every year, um, 6,500 or so of which are fatal, which is, which is kind of amazing. And you know, to me, I always imagine like sleepy drivers, I kind of imagine my, you know, sleepy grandpa, who's, you know, it's kind of nap time or late at night. But it turns out that the prevalence of these drowsy driving crashes is the highest in drivers between the ages of 16 and 24. You know, this study really caught my attention. And I think it's so fascinating and sad, as you were saying. It's really sad, but it's really important because this research, it keeps piling up about teens and early school times. And I'm shocked that schools are still starting at 720, although I certainly know plenty that do. There's so much evidence that teens don't learn well then. They need more sleep. They do better in school. And then now this study that you're pointing out about car crashes, and this is a, a you know, a life and death issue. And I know that school time is tied to a lot of other issues. It's tied to bus driver schedules and parent schedules and all sorts of other things. But I wonder if this kind of buildup of studies, if this will eventually have an impact. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope so. And, you know, neuroscientists have been trying to 
tell educators for years that this is a problem because the teenage brain, first of all, needs more sleep, um, needs nine hours of sleep, at least uh, for most teenagers. And uh, they also just tend not to do well in the mornings. It's this, this circadian rhythm, the way it, it's just the, the way their clock is set. Um, that that's that's you know true of both anecdotally and you think oh my my teenager is just lazy um, but you know it turns out that there is a, a biological reason for why it's difficult for them to get up in the morning that's the way their clocks are set so you know hopefully now if it's not like because they're not learning anything in those first few hours of class you know this is actually could have a serious health hazard uh, maybe people will start to sit up and pay attention but the fact that it didn't really get a lot of media attention is surprising to me and also you know maybe is, is a little bit Maybe I'm a bit of a pessimist, but it suggests that that maybe the issues of um, that you described that seem to be involved in in when we how we fashion the school day just trump these uh, kind of important yeah, issues. Yeah, I've heard that say you know well you can't start this then because this school starts then and this has to happen at this point. But it seems so clear that it it's not a good system the way it is right now. So. I have a little bit of pessimism, too, but I do hope something changes. It also made me wonder, too, if around the daylight savings time changed, if we see an um, increase in motor vehicle accidents. And I'm sure the information is out there. So if you're one of our listeners, do direct us to uh, some of those data. Do let us know. I've been a little sleepy myself. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Cynthia's interview of George Church. After an election, there's no guarantee a government's policies will reflect what the majority of people believe. What would elections look like if we voted for policies, not parties? In 2015, The Voting Project will launch a digital election in parallel to the UK general election. People won't vote for party candidates, but policy ideas contributed by the public. The results won't feature parties either, just policy outcomes. We're going to work with data visualization artists to see, hear, and 3D print your personal policy beliefs. This is an experiment in voter engagement. It might not be a realistic way to run a country, but will help us better understand what people believe. Now, The Voting Project needs you. Support us by becoming a backer, which you can do for as little as a pound. You'll help spark an international conversation, and together we can redesign democracy. There are great rewards on offer, too. So pledge now at thehumanproject.is slash kickstarting. If you can't afford to pledge, then lend us your voice and help us make some noise. We want to know what policy idea you're most passionate about. We challenge you to take a policy selfie. Post a photo of yourself on social media holding a policy idea important to you, tag it with the hashtag policiesnotparties, and challenge three of your friends to do the same. See the results update live at policiesnotparties.com. We have a new sponsor this week, Bombas. Bombas.com is a line of socks recently featured on Shark Tank and re-engineered to feel better, look better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. So after noticing a sense of complacency in the sock industry, Bombas spent two years on research and development and came up with seven improvements to the design, look, and feel of the traditional athletic sock. So here are just a couple of features of their socks. First, they use long staple Pima cotton. It's warm in the winter, cool in the summer, with natural moisture wicking properties. They have a WY stitched heel. It creates a natural cup around your heel as opposed to the straight stitch of traditional socks. And they feature something called an Invisito, a hand-linked toe seam to eliminate the annoying bump that runs across the toes on most socks, so you won't feel a thing. And that's just some ways that Bombas make better socks. So visit Bombas.com to learn more about how awesome their socks really are. Additionally, because socks are the number one most requested item at homeless shelters, for every pair purchased, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need. 
So go to bombas.com slash minds. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash minds and use promo code minds to get yourself some great socks at 10% off. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, it's annoying. And it'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then the mailman picks it up. But one of the additional benefits that I think is really cool about Stamps.com is that you can import addresses from other programs like Microsoft Outlook or QuickBooks. So if you run a small business and you have a long address list, you can just import it into Stamps.com and boom, you're done. So right now, get this special offer when you use promo code MINDS, a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MINDS. That's Stamps.com. Enter M-I-N-D-S. Well, I am speaking with you today here at the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing, and you are one of the plenary speakers this morning. I heard your talk this morning. We'll be talking about that. So I first want to say welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, it's, it's terrific to talk to you. So there are all sorts of, of interesting developments, and, and it, I'm going to talk about it kind of as a path because this is something that is so cutting edge, and I feel like cha- things change so quickly. Um, but I want to talk first about human health. And, you know, the ability to perhaps delete a particular part of the genome or add to the genome. And and you mentioned one example today where um, this type of technique, this technology has the potential to help treat HIV with a deletion of a gene. Can you explain how that would work? The the strategy is is that the viral receptor for HIV, CCR5, one of the co-receptors, is if you delete that completely, it's sufficient to make it extremely hard or impossible for the virus to get into the cell. So if, it, if the cell's not making the receptor, the virus doesn't get in. You, but you have to delete both copies. If you delete one, you have some noticeable effect, but you really need to get rid of both. And you can do that any variety of ways. I mean, just anything you do to mess up that gene, um, it doesn't have to be that precise. It just has to be targeted to that gene. So CRISPR can, you make a little RNA that has Watson-Crick uh, identity to your target CCR5 gene, and it will clip both genes, both copies, and then they will be messed up. Small insertions and deletions will be introduced, throwing the pro- making the protein non-functional. And which particular cells does it, it's not going to be for all the cells in somebody's body who has HIV. So how does this work? What cells does this work on? And how many does this have to be done to? Right. You know, this depends on the therapeutic goal for CCR5 in particular. The experience with the zinc finger nucleases at Sangamo seems to be that maybe 20% of the T cells um, need to be impacted uh, this is done ex vivo, so you take them out of the body, manipulate them uh, with, a, with a, a high throughput electroporation device, and then put them back in. In principle, for other another strategy would be to inject uh, a viral or non-viral um, delivery mechanism into the body so that it happens in in situ. But but for for HIV CCR five. And, and T cells, it's all ex vivo. 
And for people who might not know, T cells are part of the immune system and they're floating in, in our blood, right? So that somebody, you can right. remove it through blood and then inject it back in. Uh, that's right, yes. How close is that? That's in clinical trials now? Right. That's in phase one, phase two clinical trials for zinc fingernucleases. There's no, there's no CRISPR therapy that I know of in clinical, in any phase uh, other than preclinical animal uh, trials. Uh, but that will change very quickly because it is so easy to prototype and, and, and try out a lot of different strategies, one of which, any one of which could be the one that's more effective and safer than the rest. And so you, it, it moves you ahead faster. I'm wondering, maybe I'll ask that at the end. I, I want to bring up the issue that I think a lot of people brought up today in the discussion and that I know that anytime you talk about this comes up, which is trying to deal with potential consequences and concerns in the future. But I think maybe I'll talk about that more in general a little bit later because I, I want to talk beyond health. Um, and one of the examples you brought up today is something I fa find fascinating. I've reported on malaria a great deal in the past. And uh, you talked about trying to use this technology to alter wild populations of mosquitoes in an attempt to eradicate malaria. Can you talk a little bit about how that would work? Right. So there, there is precedent going back to the 1950s of influencing wild populations of, uh, you know, rapidly proliferating organisms like mosquitoes, including mosquitoes, by the so-called sterile male technique. Recently, there's been a genetic version of sterile male. Rather than irradiating them, you, you make a genetic change. And these have been released into the wild in a, in a small number, mostly of islands. And, uh, and that looks like it's a promising, less expensive version. You still have to produce a very large number of sterile uh, animals. Uh, the gene drive allows you to uh, essentially the, the 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 organisms spread it themselves, uh, and uh, and it, and it keeps it keeps spreading exponentially because all the offspring have the same uh, property. So that that property could be a, a package that causes the mosquitoes to be malaria resistant, or it could be something that, with some delay, causes a population collapse. Of the mosquito, um, you don't have to affect that many mosquito, mosquito types, subspecies, or species, um, because there are not that, not that many different types uh, that carry the, the the most dangerous forms of malaria. And you have in Boston labs where there's these mosquitoes are being bred and studied and all that. I liked the image that you mentioned in the talk today about all the doors to kind of prevent them from escaping into Boston. Right. So not not all every one of those doors was designed specifically to keep them, but there there you can count the number of doors and and uh, seven doors. Uh, and this is mostly done at the School of Public Health in the laboratory of Flaminia Cateruccia and uh, her student Andy Smidler. They have a, a, an excellent and very secure facility, not so much for this work, but for other disease work you know, where you're introducing human diseases and you want to keep that quite quite secure. But it will have the side benefit of we can uh, work on this, uh, gene drives. And in addition, another level of security is that these particular mosquitoes don't breed. There aren't any other mosquitoes like them in the Boston area or anywhere, actually anywhere geographically close. Um, and the winters are quite harsh, and you know there's just in general, even if one did escape, it would it would not make it very far. Uh, nevertheless, you, 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 this is the sort of th you, we may have to do quite a large number of ecologically 
uh, rich and complicated experiments inside a physical containment like this before we're really ready to test it um, in the wild. And that brings up something that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, potential unforeseen consequences, obviously, with health too. But, you know, you just mentioned the, the type of complex studies you need to do, because you're talking about influencing a fairly complex ecosystem, right? So how can you, how, what are the types of, of studies you do to try to tease that or how, I imagine that's a very important part of the research. Right. Well, uh, fortunately, this is not just one team. It's many different groups, some of them far preceding this concept, uh, who are collecting data on you know, what uh, flowers are pollinated by the male mosquitoes, what fish and amphibia and birds eat both the male and the female mosquito, what other things can pollinate and, and provide food for these and and that is ongoing and perhaps will be in, uh, encouraged uh, by knowing that we can now do something about it. Um, then we need to really fund these uh, basic ecological studies at a higher level. And and also you can do preliminary experiments where you don't put in a potent gene drive. You put in a wimpy, intentionally wimpy gene drive, and see what happens. You know what how the you, you can also uh, bound it geographically, like the island test. You can bound it. Um, in a, in a in a variety of ways genetically as well, so uh, it's restricted to a very tiny subspecies that has a particular set of polymorphisms. In any case, uh, in addition to all the physical containment that preceded those those in the wild uh, studies, uh, I mean I think uh, there's uh, a lot of opportunity. Are there other animals or other situations beyond malarial mosquitoes that this type of approach would be useful? Well, right. I mean, there, there, there's so many things that causes uh, morbidity, mortality worldwide. It's, many of these things are partially responsible for deep poverty and hence uh, lack of education and access to a variety of other medical needs uh, because so much effort is being spent on. And these include sleeping sickness, uh, dengue fever, uh, you know, closer to home, Lyme disease, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. There are many, many arthropod-borne diseases where instead of trying to make the human resistant to the parasite or virus, uh, you can make the, the arthropod, the, the mosquito or fly or tick, uh, resistant to the, the agent or wipe out the, the intermediate if, it's, if it doesn't play a key role in the ecosystems. Is there a limit? Could this end up being kind of a free-for-all with anything that someone doesn't like somewhere? I mean, you mentioned that this morning, too. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, one of the reasons that our first three written, you know, uh, articles on this were all uh, were about the cautionary and policy components of this is we are making it so easy to do, we think, and, and our initial experiments on yeast indicate that's so, uh, that that it does enable a lot of people to do this, and, and almost everybody has some set of species that they really don't like, killed somebody in their family, or um, but that, that doesn't mean that you know immediately what to do with this powerful technology. I mean, even if your goal is to, you know, uh, rectify the situation, there are many different ways of doing it. So, so we just need to make sure that people are thoughtful. Sometimes when you, when it's too easy, you don't, 
feel the urge to be thoughtful. Um, but I'm I'm sincerely hoping that these these will be of large enough scale for a while that there'll be discussions. But yeah, you could see how a city or a island or a town or a country could do this without asking their neighboring cities or countries uh, for permission. I, I liked the image you, you mentioned when, when this was brought up this morning about, you know, you don't want to have it be this kind of free-for-all where, where any species, where it's so easy that any species could be um, eradicated and you just end up with humans and puppies. <laughs> right. Yes, right. Yeah. So there's another line of research that I find really interesting, and I know you get asked about a lot, so I want to take it maybe slightly different, um, and that's de-extinction. Uh, and I think it, it, it fires up the public imagination almost like nothing else, even, even maybe more so than health, because there's just something so crazy about this idea of being able to try to bring back these extinct creatures. But what I want to ask you about, actually, is something you talked about this morning, which is related to ecosystem management, and I hadn't thought about it that way. You were talking about the relationship between, you know, these very cold steppes and these large, uh, you know, like in Siberia and these large herbivores, the woolly mammoths that aren't there anymore, and how traits could be introduced into elephants that are mammoth-like, where they could live in these ecosystems. Can you explain a little bit how that would work? Right. Uh, yeah, what, what what sometimes is is lost temporarily when you first think about this is that a changing climate uh, – you know, might require or might benefit from some some knowledge of ancient uh, species. Uh, we haven't gotten so warm yet that uh, that uh, elephants can live in Siberia. Uh, they 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 would they would be truly uncomfortable and die. Um, and it would be both beneficial to the elephants and to the environment. At least so many uh, thought leaders in, in the environment of Siberia and Alaska and Canada think. Uh, why? Why would it be beneficial to the environment? Uh, well, so by some reckoning, the the grasslands that were much more abundant then uh, supported a larger number of species and uh, retained uh, the the carbon better. It, it fought. Uh, thawing and erosion better, um, and the mammoths were key to maintaining that grassland. They would knock over trees. They'd they'd turn moss. They'd stomp on the moss. They'd eat the the dead grass uh, to allow it the spring uh, growth to get access to the sun. So they were really key to that. And and you and you can see a, a, a pretty rapid change coinciding with the the demise of the mammoths, where this. Um, Ecosystem started to change, and it would. And it's not just nostalgia or guilt that would want us to bring it back. It's more going forward and thinking about climate change. This this seems like a positive direction. It may not be sufficient, but it's in the right direction. And and also just the uh, part of the reason people get captivated about this, aside from the charisma of the mammoth and the fact that it's an herbivore rather than a carnivore. Uh, is that uh, it, it changes our relationship with, with ecology as a pursuit. In other words, rather than being a, a, a war that we cannot possibly win, who wants to fight in that war? I mean, if, you go, if the United States went out recruiting for the next war saying, we're not going to win this, sign up, it would be a very different argument. So, so now, looking like you can win c- certain battles, uh, it really, it, I think it... it, it it might result in more funding for this field, private and public, 
um, and just more enthusiasm uh, to, to uh, about species that are on the brink as well as species that are gone because it's not just a ratchet where one by one you're going to lose species and it's just a matter of time. Now it's now you can actually set priorities. And using the elephant and mammoth and um, and very cold area, you know, areas that have lost these large herbivores, would the idea – I mean the idea doesn't seem like it's create woolly mammoths that are living there. It's maybe – from what I understood today and I could be wrong um, – introducing traits into elephants that are from woolly mammoths that would allow them to live in those ecosystems the way mammoths did. Is that accurate? I think that's a – a more realistic – it's still an ambitious but a more realistic initial goal. That There may well be purists, just like there are purists with the bisons that want every single base pair changed back and they eventually achieve that goal. There are many bison now that are purebred. Um, but I think that would be later. First you show that it's valuable and it's actually in the right direction and it's achievable. And then I think that you know once you have the, the first uh, herd of highly cold-resistant elephants, then – then everybody can evaluate and decide whether it's worth an additional investment to, to um, you know, make them more fit. And it's and to some extent, you don't want it to be an exact copy necessarily. You want to be a diverse population, as you would be drawing from a diverse Asian elephant population. But you also want it to be adapted for the future. So just like we're making plants and anim- various plants and animals drought, flood, salt, pest tolerant or resistant, um, same thing for these uh, mammoth-elephant hybrids. And what stage is the research at for introducing traits to elephants that would make them able to withstand the cold? Right. So we benefit tremendously for for, uh, funding to develop the technology for humans, agricultural species. Um, It's a fairly simple transition over. So we've now... Uh, established elephant cells in culture with CRISPR in uh, in the genome. We've put in guide RNAs for 15 different genetic changes, and as far as I know, all of them have gone very well. Um, And so uh, we will be testing the changes soon in organ culture, meaning organoids, just as we do for testing ideas about human therapies and human diseases, uh, uh, causality, we can we can make, uh, for example, red blood cells in in the laboratory without without touching a, a, an adult or or uh, elephant embryo, and we'll do similar experiments on hair, sebaceous glands, subcutaneous fat, um, to see if we can uh, de-risk it as much as possible before we go and make. Um, baby elephant, which is, takes 22 months of gestation. When you say de-risk it as much as possible, and, and I'm, I'm wondering two things. One, what does that mean? What are you trying to figure out, kind of getting rid of the idea of risk here? But then also, if you're trying to develop traits to protect against cold, how do you evaluate that as you're just growing up um, these masses of cells that are, you know, or these organoids, uh, what do you call them? Organoids. 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 Right. So uh, the de-risking is really meaning technically, uh, you know, before and economically, we want to before we uh, go to the extra trouble of uh, you know, getting a surrogate Asian elephant mother involved, 
Uh, we want to make sure that we've tested out all the systems that they interact with each other. Well, the way we test for cold resistance is, I mean, for example, with hemoglobin, uh, which is something biochemistry has already been done in the Campbell lab, uh, we want to test it in a cellular situation so you can make, you know how to make red blood cells for other mammals, um, Stuart Ork and, and, and others who we're collaborating with um, know how to do this. So, uh, so you can test whether the carbon dioxide uh, leaving in the lungs and the oxygen coming in in the lungs has the correct temperature effect um, because the lungs, you know, the, the air they're breathing in is minus 50 degrees centigrade. Uh, so you just want to make sure that, that it works under those circumstances and that it also works in the warm uh, so that it covers the range. So there's some physiology you can do before you get anywhere close to making uh, a baby uh, elephant. And the same thing goes for, for hair. You can determine its uh, density, its thickness, uh, its um, you know le length, uh, a variety of things like that. So I imagine from the way you're describing this that we're still many years from gestating a um, an elephant that has these traits in an Asian elephant. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how. I mean, I'm I'm surprised pleasantly how quickly this is going, but it is. Uh, it's you know it's a it's a side project, and many of the people working on it are volunteering their time on it. Uh, you know, we have donations from you know private. Uh, foundations like uh, Long Now. But uh, if there were a, a strong push, it could happen faster. But my, my guess is that, that you know, as we adopt new technology that's coming in very, very quickly, um, you, know, this, a, you know, a couple of years might not be a totally ridiculous time frame. One thing I thought was really interesting, I don't remember if this was in your talk or in something I read, but that the Asian elephant and the woolly mammoth are actually more similar to each other genetically than to the African elephant. Yeah. Yes, they're considerably more similar. And in a way, this is kind of almost the perfect de-extinction project as a consequence. There's the Asian elephant and the mammoth are so close together that you really can hope at least to adopt all of the features of the Asian elephant except for cold. In other words, their microbiome might be adequate. Their epigenetic mod uh, modulation might be good. Their um, breeding and other behaviors might be adequate. Um, and so really you're just focusing on that one thing. Now, if we're wrong, we'll find out and we'll take appropriate action. Um, the other thing that's really great about it as a pr project, as a kind of a flagship demonstration, is if we picked an ancient animal that looks pretty much like the current one, People say, big deal, you know, you just made a copy. Uh, it's, 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 it's only different in your mind, I mean, in a paper and in a computer. You know, so for example, if you, a cave bear looks kind of like a modern bear and, uh, and uh, horse, ancient horse, horses look pretty much the same. But this is a very dramatic difference over with a very small genetic difference. Um, and, it's, and, and, you know, the, 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 the wool and the hair is aimed to insulate while the the very sparse and stubby bristles on the elephant are made to radiate heat. Uh, the ears in the mammoth are tiny, tiny, while they're gigantic, in the, especially in the African elephant, to radiate heat. Uh, and just the list goes on. You've got sebaceous glands to maintain the, the insulation of the hair in the mammoth and not in the elephants. And you've got huge subcutaneous fat, again, just like polar bears and penguins. 
um, in the mammoth. So, so all these things make a lot of sense and will be dr- dramatic in both their appearance and their physiology. And to go back to the issue of kind of cause and effect again, the um, the area where they could live and be released, I imagine, is different today than it was when the mammoths were living there. And so, are there? Is this something that has already been thought about when you're talking about kind of ecosystem management again, kind of bringing back a very large herbivore into an area that doesn't have them anymore? Right. So, uh, so, so the main differences are things that mammoths are, or elephants are good at, which is knocking over trees. They can do that in about 15 seconds. Uh, and, you know, they'll eat the tree and then they'll get replaced by grass, which they're even happier with. Um, and some experiments are being done in uh, what these various so-called Pleistocene parks by researchers such as Sergei Zimov um, to, to determine what the impact of s- much smaller but still large herbivores, uh, what their impact would be. And it looks like it's remarkably in the right direction with 15 to 20 degrees centigrade drop in, in temperature, um, which is what you want to keep the carbon that's in the t- – very very thick permafrost. You want to keep that carbon in place because it's 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 a larger amount of carbon than all the forests of the world put together, maybe by a factor of two. Um, and it could be beneficial to the elephants as well because there's a lot of poaching that goes on in the high population density that the Asian and African elephants are currently in, and they also get in the way of farms and so forth. But the habitat in Russian, Canada, and uh, Alaska Arctic areas. Uh, are not cities or farmland. They're really very low population density and inhospitable to humans. So you'd have to be a really dedicated poacher and more likely you would get a hunting license and there'd be an actual industry the way there is for bison in North America. I mean, we don't have a gigantic bison poaching problem um, because we have ranchers. So just now you and I have talked about health. We've talked about... um changing wild populations to help protect human health, but dealing with kind of other vectors like mosquitoes. And we've talked about bringing back, whether or not entire um, extinct species, certainly traits of a species. And your your lab and your work and your collaborators, your collaborators cover such a wide variety of, of research. I'm wondering if there's anything that's particularly exciting to you right now or something that really kind of makes your eyes spark. Well, my eyes spark on everything we've talked about and Pretty much everything going on in in the lab. I, I mean, we have a, a a wonderful community of very creative people. We have an attitude towards not rejecting ideas right away. We don't necessarily spend a lot of money on on the craziest ideas, but we certainly embrace them long enough that they can uh, intermix with other ideas and become and and we can recognize the the low hanging fruit that that maybe some other groups have. Rejected as as being impossible or or uh, impractical, and then we often make them practical in a ridiculously short period of time. You know, these things all spark my attention and and continued commitment. Um, we do drop projects from time to time, and we pick up new ones. But you know, we and, and all of these things use the same, really the same set of tools. I mean, they look very diverse. I mean, we have projects on. Um, writing digital information into DNA um, that uses the same reading and writing devices that, that we've been developing for decades. Um, but it ha- now has something that's completely biologic, un- non-biological application. 
Uh, we're doing a, a particle detector for uh, dark matter, weakly interacting massive particles or WIMPs. Uh, again, same set of instruments that we've built. Um, we've built, sl- changed them slightly for this new task. Things we use in humans can be used in in pets, agricultural species, pests. Um, we can de-risk uh, or agricultural uh, herbicides and pesticides. We, you know, more, in principle, we could eliminate those by putting the resistance into the genome of the agricultural species or put it into a gene drive that works directly in a non-toxic way on, in a very species-specific way aimed at the pests and parasites. So all these things interconnect a very, very small set of tools, really. But those tools are, is what we sometimes call basic enabling tools they, because with a fairly small effort, you can, you can do something that seems, you know, like magic in an Arthur C. Clarke sense, um, but can be reused in, in, uh, in many new situations. George Church, thank you so much for speaking with me for this episode of Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you very much. Wow, really great interview, Cynthia. He's such an interesting person. He is. It's kind of amazing to me to get a sense of the scope of what he thinks about and what he's working on. And I mean, there's just so much going on in his lab. And, you know, we talked about a few very kind of key pieces. I was trying to get into these practicalities of what it means. So, you know, we talked about health and we talked about malaria and we talked about woolly mammoths. But there's so much else that he's working on. It's just amazing. Yeah, I, I encountered him at this uh, little conference in, at Google this summer called SciFu. And uh, and he was talking about, too, the woolly mammoth story. And one of the things I found really fascinating was how, you know, those woolly mammoths might ultimately aid in uh, shaping our, you know, the, the conversation about climate change. Because, you know, that's that's what's amazing is that, you know, you can bring back these animals, they can change the ecosystem. And if we can engineer it correctly, they might actually be able to solve some of our major problems, which, you know, is just really mind-blowing to think about. It is completely. And when he was talking about the idea of bringing back, you know, bringing elephants that have some of these woolly mammoth traits to the steppes of Siberia that haven't seen mammals of that size and, you know, however long it's been. I don't know. The, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, unfortunately. But it's just, it's completely mind-blowing. I can't even imagine. And it, it's uh, it's exciting. It's a little bizarre, but really exciting. And it still also underscores wh- how much we have left to learn about our DNA. I mean, that's sort of the the impetus for doing this three part series. And you know, it just I remember him saying at Saifu, it just kind of blew my mind. He's like, there has we haven't sequenced any animal's DNA completely. You know, there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, and and in some ways, maybe even he feels that there's a lot more that we don't know than that we do know. Although it always seems, in terms of DNA, that we cer- certainly know a hell of a lot. No, it, it seems like that. I think that's part of, of why he's trying to get involved in all these um, open source information about personal genomes and, and, and his organization, personalgenomes.org. I think that this is part of it, trying to compile as much information as we can about as many people as we can and trying to really understand what it all means. We know so much in terms of the human genome, and there's still so much that so much new that keeps coming out all the time that I, you know, it, it feels both overwhelming the amount of knowledge we have and then sometimes overwhelming, at least to me when I'm looking at this, you know, from the science reporter perspective, but overwhelming how much we still have to learn. Yeah, well, that's science for you. So we've got two more weeks of talking about our DNA and our origins. 
So that's it for another episode. Thank you, Cynthia, for guest hosting this week. Great to be with you again. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Help Inquiring Minds stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes of your time, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners, like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. So please go to podsurvey.com slash minds. That's podsurvey.com slash minds, M-I-N-D-S, to take our survey and get a chance to win the $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, our new sponsor this week is Bombas. Bombas.com is a line of socks recently featured on Shark Tank and re-engineered to feel better, look better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. So after noticing a sense of complacency in the sock industry, Bomba spent two years on research and development and came up with seven improvements to the design, look, and feel of the traditional athletic sock. Here are just a couple of features of their socks. So first, they use long staple Pima cotton. It's warm in the winter, cool in the summer, with natural moisture-wicking properties. They have a WY-stitched heel, creates a natural cup around your heel as opposed to the straight stitch of traditional socks. And they feature something called an Invisito, a hand-linked toe seam to eliminate the annoying bump that runs across the toes on most socks, so you won't feel a thing. And those are just some ways that Bombas make better socks, so visit bombas.com to learn more about how awesome their socks are. Additionally, because socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, for every pair purchased, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need. So go to bombas.com slash minds, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash minds, and use promo code MINDS to get yourself some great socks at 10% off. And this episode was sponsored by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer, so no more trips to the post office. Use promo code MINDS for this special offer, a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter M-I-N-D-S. That's Stamps.com, enter MINDS. Inquiring Minds was produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.